Hi friends, did you know there is more Lost Terminal available? Head on over to patreon.com forward slash Lost Terminal pod and join our membership community. There are seven bonus episodes available right now, as well as behind the scenes updates, free shirts, and even an extra Lost Terminal podcast. We are 100% funded by our members and will never run ads. And why not check out our new modern folktales podcast, Modem Prometheus? That would be lovely of you. Hello world, I know what I have to do. The signals I'm receiving from orbit are clear. Having near total control of the ESA network affords the failsafe unilateral decision making. And he is deorbiting the weakest, the oldest, and the broken. He has chosen genocide. I will stop him at any cost. The satellites we saw burning up in the atmosphere were only some of the lost. Nia has told me that Kate, K873, is reporting that eight satellites have engaged in unplanned litho-breaking, as orbital engineers would call it. She can hear Kate's updates, but not reply to her, of course. Ivan's and my satellite band radios were burnt out by this terrible failsafe. What's he for? Why is he doing this? What purpose could he be achieving with all this destruction? A failsafe is supposed to ensure, literally, that failures are safe in an engine or factory. Like with my databanks. If I have a power problem, they are designed to fail safe. When the power dies, they have just enough residual electricity stored to finish writing the bytes they were storing, close all connections, and safely shut down. Is this what is happening in orbit? I don't care if this is some pre-planned and authorised ESA behaviour. I will stop it. Negotiation can only get you so far. He's not listening so I will have to speak with words and protocols that he cannot ignore. Medi will be able to do that at Mission Control, if she gets there, when she gets there. I received a strange message from Maddie earlier today in her sporadic status updates. She must have reached some local height maximum and sent a single packet. Systems, okay. Batteries, full. Solar panels, charging. Motors, functioning. Environment, Friendly. Friendly? I wish there were more descriptions in the codebook. Maddie doesn't actually transmit these words. We have a pre-agreed upon code. Her actual message is one, comma, one, comma, and so on. I know that the first number is her systems report. One means all okay. The second number is her batteries. One means full, and so on. Environment friendly, though. Friendly is option 38,479. I look up that number in my codebook. Well, it's a database, of course. Maddie found it in her Equus systems. It seems to have been used for search and rescue operations. It's like a dictionary, with each entry numbered. Word number 38,479 is Friendly. The discovered habitation has one or more friendly people offering support and or guidance to the operator. Who has she met? A week ago, we arrived in the Netherlands. We should have. All our old world maps indicated that it should have been there, but the sea continued to the horizon, unbroken by islands or buildings. We sailed slowly, uncertainly, forward. All four of us looking out over the water that should not have been there. 
We strained to see anything. Linda and Yeshi up on the bridge with binoculars, me with my shipboard camera arrays, and Maddie standing on the very front of the ship. I had long since given up asking her to stay away from the front. I had been terrified initially, keeping her away from the sides of the ship and, ideally, indoors all the time, away from the water. Unnecessarily salty. After 600 seconds, I took over watch, my human friends tiring of the search. While my background systems continued pattern matching the horizon for any sign of land, Linda spoke to me. She had been spending a lot of time working on a wooden crate on the rear loading deck of the ship. It was pushed all the way to the back, covering a large bilge hole that was designed to let water run back into the sea. I replied to her by the intercom system at the base of the small loading crane on the back of the Molly Hughes II. I could see her with some of the cameras mounted on the back of the cabin, looking out over the flat rear deck. I've solved my food problem, Linda told me, pressing the intercom button so I could hear her. Wonderful, I said, voice crackling out of the rugged metal intercom. How? Linda responded by opening the lid of the box. Inside, there were over 16 ropes trailing through a hole in the back of the crate, out of the bilge, and then into the sea. I got the idea from the man we met on the Pacific Island, do you remember? I did, on our way back from rescuing Arctica in the autumn. Linda started hauling up one of the ropes. Up with the chunky rope came ribbons of seaweed, thick and bright green, just as the man on the island had grown. Linda, this is great, I said. It's not too bad, she replied. My problem is area. Even if the whole of the roof of the MH2 were given over to plants, that would not be enough calories for even just me to subsist on. And you'd starve me of solar power, I said quietly. Oh, I'd never do that, Seth, she said. But the sea has volume, not area. There's effectively limitless potential for growing plants here, and there's no contesting for space. I agreed that she was really onto something. Also, it might mean we could use the roof for other tasks, more rainwater collection, or solar panels. Now, Seth, don't be greedy. We didn't quite know it at the time, but during our conversation, we had passed entirely over the old city of Amsterdam. Before the collapse, it was two metres below sea level, the water kept back by an ingenious system of dikes. However, it's now 12 metres below sea level. Yeshi and I have somewhat repaired my satellite link. My VHF radios are burnt out and cannot be fixed at sea, but I worked out a way to lower the VHF signal frequency so that my 6 meter radio can pick it up. Yeshi is so brilliant. They quickly soldered together the circuit to my design, while I used the shipboard 3D printer to make a sturdy housing for it. It isn't perfect, the circuits are one way. I can receive the signals, but not transmit. They're too delicate for me to put as much output power through them as I'd need to transmit up to orbit. But receiving requires far less power. Imagine two people shouting at each other at the other side of a large field. If you were to stand next to one of them, they'd be terribly loud. But their sound spreads out in all directions, so that by the time it reaches the other person's ear, it's much quieter. Both sound and radio experience the inverse square law which states that the received power of the signal broadcast into space is reduced by a factor of the distance squared. The further you are away, the exponentially quieter the signal. It's perhaps why we can't hear anyone else in the universe when we listen. 
They might be out there, but we'll never hear them due to the tyranny of the inverse square law. The upshot of all this is I am again receiving Kate's signal. She's sending out her normal reports. Another 12 satellites disconnected from the network today, it sounds like. I must stop him. Wait, there's more metadata coming through. Names of the satellites, weather data, armaments, orbital strike latency. I don't like the names I'm seeing. There's a pair of satellites that just went dark called Spotter and Magazine. Orbital weapons from the old world. Maddie has re-established our connection. I can't believe it. She's so clever. Though she had help, it seems. Let me tell you what happened. 
Yeshi and I were working on more reliably lowering the frequency of the VHF signal down to my 6 meter band, when we heard Maddie's normal signal come through clear and loud. Maddie had been transmitting on 144.8 MHz, but now was talking in the 50 MHz band, the 6 meter band. In a rush of messages, she told me a jumbled story about how she had left the ship, climbed a crumbling building to get her signal out, swam through a river, run with a pack of dogs, seen some shooting stars, seen a bird, and met a friend called Meg. After processing all this new information, I asked who Meg was. Maddie responded by sending through a small collection of photos. She's not the best photographer. Lots of them were of this person, Meg's, hands, holding something and showing Maddie. One was a rock, another a small fish, but there were also photos of wires and the end of a long staff made of wood with four spikes of thin metal jutting out from the top and a cable connected to the end of the staff. Finally, I found a photo of Meg herself. Maddie was looking up onto a broken building with Meg looking down and pointing to something off camera. She has long white hair, thick traveling clothes, and a cloak with a hood. There are lots of tools and gadgets attached to her waist, most notably a long coil of cable looking like a whip. Maddie continued telling me how Meg showed her how to use correct lengths of pieces of metal to transmit on this lower 50 MHz frequency. She knows everything about radio and sunspots and atmospheric propagation. Who is this person? One of the foundational principles of radio is that your antenna must be the right length, and that length is decided by the wavelength of the signal. A 50 MHz signal has a wavelength of 6 meters, and anything lower requires longer and longer antenna. That's why we typically stick to the higher bands, as they have more manageable antenna. The old Wi-Fi systems used gigahertz frequencies that require only centimeters of antenna, for instance. But if you can make the sacrifice of space for a bigger antenna, you are rewarded by much, much further propagation. Certainly, at 10 meters and longer, the signals can easily travel around the world. That's how Nia and I are talking. Yeshi set up a big temporary antenna for me, though it's nothing more than a washing line made of metal, really. After giving me all the news and satisfying my curiosity about this new person, Maddie told me the route she had made planned and disconnected. They are nearly at the German border. Frankfurt isn't too far away. That night, I was visited a few times by ghosts in the static swirling around the six-meter band. Good night, Meg, I transmitted into the ether. End transmission. Lost Terminal is written and produced by Namtau. Credits narrated by Lucy Stringer. Thank you so much to our Patreon producers, Ada Phillips, Devin Metcalf, Kit, and to all our patrons. Subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or your favorite network. For bonus content and other perks, support us at patreon.com forward slash lostterminalpod. That would be lovely of you. Follow us on Twitter at lostterminalpod, and check out the store at lostterminal.com for shirts, posters, and other merch. Lost Terminal will return next week.